Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So... I usually don't post episodes in the same order in which I record them. There's a lot of juggling around for continuity purposes, and maybe some are easier to edit than others, but this was too coincidental to pass up, so I am posting uh, these two episodes back-to-back. If you listened to the last episode, you heard uh, James Ferrigno, who is a relationship coach based in Northern California, and now we're going to talk to Mike Couché, who is a sex therapist based in Northern California. Northern California is apparently a hotbed for people who are interested in discussing relationships and sex and everything that uh, surrounds that. Anyway, uh, like I said, Mike's a psychotherapist. He specializes in sex therapy. He's based in Northern California. Uh, Mike and I actually met in Toronto uh, maybe six years ago at a conference, and uh, our conversation covers not only why he does what he does for a living, it's a really interesting origin story, but how his career has helped with his own personal development and exploration. It's really interesting to me. I don't necessarily think of people, of therapists helping themselves, But I understand why people would sort of go into therapeutic practices in order to get a little bit more insight into the type of people that they are. Uh, So uh, Mike has gained quite a bit of insight into himself and his relationships and his sexuality through doing the work. And uh, we talk about his work with others and his work with themselves, with himself, with himself. He is not multiple selves. Aside from his career, Mike is a devoted parent. Uh, He speaks passionately about his responsibility as a father, as well as a husband and a partner. There is a lot of knowledge dropped here, so please join me in welcoming yet another Dr. Mike to the show. So I'm Michael Gachet. Professionally, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT, practicing in California, and I specialize in sex therapy. And in that specialization, I end up seeing a lot of kinky folks, a lot of polyamorous, non-monogamous folks, a lot of trans individuals, LGBT individuals about, like, relatively just, like, Sometimes they've ended up being harmed by an uneducated or unaware therapist. So that tends to be my realm where is 
a large part of the work I do. And then the other part is the, the straightforward sex therapy of people coming to their own, accepting themselves, um, moving through their own identities, exploring those identities, and sexual dysfunction, sexual connection, and some small amount of couples therapy. I, I'm not as big into couples therapy, but I, I do see clients who like have a lot of communication background or getting into their own individual therapy or so forth. So that's kind of what I'm up to personally in life. I am a father. I'm a husband. I'm polyamorous myself. So I have a partner out there in the world, sort of 15-year marriage, a 12-year-old child, and then a five-year-long polyamorous relationship with a girlfriend. So that's the personal place I'm at. Awesome. You know, I kind of understand the motivation for somebody to just become a therapist. You know, you want to help people. But what was the motivation for you specifically to decide that you want to work in the disciplines that you work in? So I was an odd kid in that when I was like nine, I was like, I want to be a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. My grandmother was a therapist, so I had that example. And then I'm neurodivergent, ADHD kind of individual. So I had some occupational and learning therapist stuff that was there helping with grammar and so forth. So I had these lovely people who were giving me a lot of empathy and kindness that made me go, oh, that's a really cool thing to do. Maybe a common example is that someone has a great teacher and they want to become a teacher. So I had already had that momentum from a very, very young age. And then I just kept on pursuing it. I got to college and pursued a a bachelor's in psychology, attached a a bachelor's in business to that, and then a master's in counseling psychology, turning into LMFT. And in that college experience, I took a sex ed course and then got roped into some volunteer work and then just really, really loved it. I worked for a local rape crisis center in Monterey, did some sex education stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll take the sex education route. Oh yeah, but I'm also becoming a therapist. And in that experience, I ended up bumping into a sex therapist and he's like, have you heard about sex therapy? And at that point, as like an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, I hadn't really. And so it was just a light bulb moment. And then that turned into a 10-year plan to get licensed and certified. And then I've been practicing now for about six years, just being out there in the world doing my own thing. Look, I'm not a therapist myself. I feel like a lot of people decide to pursue that as a vocation based on their own experiences, Mm. like growing up and either having or needing a therapist. Was there ever a point in your adolescence or in your life when you felt like you needed or could have used the kind of therapist you are today? Yeah, I, 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 that's a very true insight for thinking about two like overgeneralized camps of the person who had great therapy and was like, oh, I'll become one. And the people who did their own personal journey, maybe it was like personal work or therapist work. And like, I, I want to help people in the same way. That is very common. And so in my becoming a therapist, it wasn't until I was deep into it. It was more like I wanted to help people maybe from a perspective that I was having enjoyment in. There's an element of sex therapy that is very specifically like really deep trauma work, individuals who have been harmed in the past. But a larger part of it is what we call working well therapy, individuals who are doing great, they're thriving. When we talk about it amongst professionals, it's a very privileged therapy. You have to have some amount of privilege or financial safety or something going on to even access that. Because I take intakes, I speak very generally, you need to maybe go deal with some more mental health stuff. I'm not the right person for you right now. I, I know you love to be able to access more sexuality in your life. I can give you some like personal resources. I need you to work on this before we get to this part because 
one of the central tenets of sex therapy is safety. And if you can't access safety, it's really hard to access the frontal lobe pretty much where a lot of our safety from a brain perspective comes from. So to your question in a long-winded way, I was pursuing it in a way that I wanted to spread the gospel, spread the fun, spread the enjoyment that I had that many people are going to discover in their sexual awakenings in the late teens, early adulthood spot. Right. And this question just popped into my head. I'm about to generalize and I shouldn't generalize. I'm only going to speak to my personal experience. I did not grow up with a healthy idea or really any idea or conception of what healthy sexuality was. I realized that some people actually have parents and older relatives that talk to them about this stuff. I didn't happen for me. Was healthy sexuality always part of your life or was it something that you had to have the come to Jesus moment with? Relatively, my sexual awakening was supported by, by society. So there was enough in the air if you will, to see media representations of the straightness that I was existing in back then, like be able to see sexual imagery that kind of feeds that desire. So while my parents were pretty avoidant of the subject, they were never dismissive of the question. And there are plenty of examples of people I've talked to who have had some incredibly supportive parents. I just had sort of passive parents who were just trying to make sure I didn't get up to too much trouble. So they were more like answering my curiosity, not getting ahead of the conversation and teaching me things that I didn't know, kind of the way that I'm parenting right now is I, I, I've tended to start answering questions that I assume my child is going through. And sometimes I'm off the base and they kind of like, you know, you're being silly dad more often than not, just because of my training, I'm hitting kind of the markers on things. So I guess some of the subjects I'm going to keep bringing back to is that a lot of my personal identity and experience was, you know, just upheld in a way that made it easy to move through. And then I went to a really rather liberal Christian school that while they were doing a little bit of the proselytizing, it was still very much... I, my personal view of the vein of the Christianity we would like to see everywhere. Like, hey, love your neighbor, no shame, no judgment. Allow people to come to this as if that they want kind of thing. So that was very foundational in the formations of my ethics and the kindness I give myself was that my parents had already like, or, or post-religious at that point, but they somehow accidentally landed me in a place that was just full of a lot of compassionate Christianity. Now, did you grow up in California or did you port yourself there? Oh, so until I was 18 to go to college, I was in Southern California, near Anaheim, in the little city of Santa Ana. So that was where I was until 18, and then I came out to Monterey, and I'm 37 now. So for, I've cr now crossed one year longer in Monterey than I was in my hometown. Gotcha. From a standpoint of you being polyamorous, when did that come into the picture, or how did you make that discovery? So in doing the sex education and sex therapy track, I ended up learning about this whole different way of relational style. And it was more of an observing kind of thing. Also, so I'm 15 years of marriage and I'm 37. We got together. You got like, married at 22. 20. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. You were a uh -huh. baby. Yes, specifically, which is a part of where, like, for the Christian school, a lot of, you know, heteronormative fault monogamy direction in that kind of perspective. So I'm in sex education, I'm, I'm in sex therapy, and I'm just meeting polyamorous, non-monogamous people, people who are having their, their, a different kind of way of living. And so like, I could do that too. It just had just lovely people around me in that way. And then some six or so years into our marriage, I'm starting to get, like, this is a part of who I am. This is a part of my sex education and coming into and later young adulthood. I was like, oh, sex can be an activity that is not connected 
to fidelity, if you will, or maybe that's not the right word, but it doesn't have to be housed in such sacredness, like only one person. And how does that happen? And the thoughts just kept on evolving. I'm like, oh, I can understand this. And then I, I came to a place of like, hey, I'd like to participate with this and put it on the table in my relationship of like, hey, this seems interesting to me. What do you think about it? And then it was just seven years of conversations about it. It was a long time of building trust. There's a lot of initial friction of me even putting it on the table of like, hey, this is something I'd like. A lot of insecurities come up on both sides of am I enough or what's wrong or all those kind of those kind of conversations. But over time, both coming to a mutual understanding of it. And then a little bit of openness led to um, other people in my life's journeys of their own to, to where they ended up finding their own openness, their own experiences too. That's amazing. In your experience, what do you see as some of the biggest issues that men specifically seem to have with regards to sexuality or relationships? Mm, let's see. In the idea of generality, there is some elements of, there's a word I use all the time uh, and it always falls on my brain. So men as a place of like entitlement and the desire to conquer and the desire to be strong and the desire to be viewed as manly of whatever that tends to create a challenge around opening up, if you will, or around jealousy, around being enough, around penis size, around like, is somebody better than me? Am I replaceable? Those tend to be some of the really intense places that see men getting stuck when it comes to some generalness. Not that it's not in any other gender place, but that is some of the biggest things about the confidence and security being hard to find in any corners of a relationship. Ultimately, believing that there's somebody better out there and you don't want your person to find them or start to lose your connection to them because you will eventually be replaced. And in my work, I step into like, well, yeah, that's true. And so... There's going to be some celebrity or some billionaire, or there's going to be somebody who is going to have a bigger penis. There's going to be something I, out yeah, there. I mean, like, they like, don't have like, to be a celebrity yeah. or billionaire. It yeah, could just yeah. be the guy next door that yeah. has a bigger dick than you. Yeah, so there's all these places of insecurity that like, what if you step into that? And what about me is what I'm bringing to the table. I was like, yes, I'm replaceable and I'm also unique and I can take care of your needs and I can learn and love in, in that way. Participating with your own places of confidence or specialness or your own strengths in those kind of places. Do you get a lot of men who are intimacy challenged? Okay, so going back to the top, I like to even answer this question, is mm -hmm. that men accidentally have been taught to view their performance mostly based on what their penis is doing or if, if it's hard. And so, so they are like only focusing on one part of their entire sex organ, their entire ability to be intimate. So if they ever have any inability to achieve an erection or a belief that it's the only place they receive pleasure, it creates a foundation that doesn't in encompass the whole mindfulness of, of things. To give an example of like, like the pleasure of receiving a massage. A lot of my men who are intimacy challenged, if you will, that I work with, given the assignment of like, go and have a massage and relax into it. Feel the body pleasure of that. Feel getting touched. Feel the relaxation of that. But feeling good in that. Not just 
that we are as men like our penises like that's the only place of sensation happening how do you press your body against another person and feel their body against your chest how do you touch with your hands so so the intimacy challenge it's kind of baked in accidentally through like when we watch porn as an education perspective or not being taught about pleasure being not so focused in this one performance area it is a lot more expansive and society you know underlines and gives a lot of permission to feminine individuals to cover that pleasure, take a bath, go get a massage, go get your nails done, go do all these things that give an opportunity to access that mindfulness, that body connection kind of place. So to answer that question, that's where I would start in some of these places. Yeah. Reading this back to myself and thinking about my own experience, and I, I'm comfortable enough with you that I will share this publicly, is that I have had issues with ED for quite a few years, partially due to the fact that I'm diabetic, partially due to anxiety. And sometimes the meds work, sometimes they don't work. A lot of times, actually, they don't work. It has kind of taken me on a journey to explore the things that I like about intimacy and sexuality a little bit more because I, like everybody else, you think all the pleasure is in the in and out of it. You know, it's almost like sex for sport. You know, you're giving or you're receiving. And, you know, that's kind of it. But for me, anyway, and I think for a lot of other people, the pleasure that you can derive from sex can be done without penetration. Mm-hmm. You know, so I am grateful that you have mentioned, and so many of us guys put all of our confidence in our dicks. Mm. <laughs> Precisely. When, you know, it's certainly not the only sexual organ. It's not, you know, it, Yeah, I I think there needs to be a much more nuanced conversation around that. I guess the second part of what I was going to ask was, in your experience, do you encounter a lot of men who have issues with their, I don't know if issues is the right word, confusion or repression regarding their sexuality? Where, you know, yeah. Sorry, in, in various ways, you know, it might be a fetish or a kink or a desire for a different gender than they've been working with or whatever that might mean. And I guess this is sort of the element of toxic masculinity is that there's only one box. There's only one lane. There's only so much. And if you're outside of that, you're under the concern of being judged. You're under the concern of not being manly enough or being perceived as strong or whatever that might mean. So a decent amount of people come to me trying to work through the shame and of self-acceptance how do I tell my partner about this? Can I tell people about this? Should I bring this to my grave? Do I open up about this? Kind of these various locations or spots in their own identity. So there is that part that if we're, you know, once again, compare binaries, that women often get this opportunity to explore and like have a time when they try things out in college. It's all old, old, stereotypes, yeah, old yeah. stereotypes and tropes. But that does, even as a stereotype and trope, give permission to a lot of people just to try things on and explore. And men really don't have that as much societal granted and while we were all individuals, enough people are in the population that are just following along or looking at media representation as you know their litmus test for feeling comfortable or even trying anything. So right. it's difficult to not talk in generalities with the people who come to me. Like, like 
society and if we're going to call it propaganda like just keeps coming in and it's hard to create a personal identity if you don't feel safe in doing that and without permission but that's honestly what a lot of people are coming to me for is maybe i'm the first person they reveal the secret to or i'm the first person they're telling things to and my reception and and non-judgment of that is sometimes the launching point for them to try to explore in more ways right how tied is health with relation to sexuality and intimacy, like how tied is that to just good mental health? So it, it would be significant because so diabetes, is it okay if I yeah, know, absolutely. talk to your example? Yeah. So there is physiological elements to diabetes that cause cellular damage to like small capillaries. So that's a physiological piece, but leads to like elements with the difficulty around erection. And there's the other side of it, which is the mental piece of, am I anxious right now? Do I want to perform? What am I telling myself in my head? Or am I bashing myself? Am I activating my fight or flight? That's the mental health piece. Are you being kind to yourself? Are you staying present moment of it? Are you feeling anxious because you're projecting in the future? I mean, someone's going to be mad at me or, or frustrated at me. And that anxiousness can lead to the activation of fight or flight. And when we're in fight or flight, it's very difficult to access arousal and erection. Or are we depressed? Are we viewing the past? Like knowing that I, I've whatever failed, I told myself I'm failing or I'm not doing great in the past. And I have a low mood. I have a low experience that I'm not feeling very motivated or activated to find a libido. So that's the mental health side of a larger equation, a larger talk. So yes, erections are one piece, but to feel libido, to feel desire, to feel that drop of inhibition is like being able to access the present, access the frontal lobe as it is to be in your own body, to be present. Right. Recently, I did another interview for this and something I've been hearing lately from a lot of people, my therapists, other therapists I speak to, coaches that I've spoken to is being present in the body. And again, speaking of myself personally, I spend a lot of time in my head and it's very hard for me to like come out of my head and actually sort of feel what's going on in places other than my brain. Do you have any suggestions for how to do that because i so, think particularly when it comes to sex i think a lot of guys focus on their performance so much they're not able to actually like feel the pleasure of the activity as it's happening mm -hmm. so i guess the easiest way to talk about it is like from a sensate focus like what are your senses telling you so in trying to engage in connecting with the body i might prescribe some amount of meditation or, or deep breathing to learn what mindfulness is, learning what calming down is, just to be able to view your own thoughts. Often, like in essence, assigned masturbation, not from a place of being overstimulated with a lot of porn or a lot of imagery, but on your own body, maybe relying on your imagination and on the touching self. And commonly enough men are just touching their penis, touching a chest, touching inner thigh, touching your back, your hands, just touching your body and, and learning to connect with sensation in that way. And then applying that to the bedroom, like when you're embracing somebody, do you feel their body against another body? What do you feel in the air? Do you feel the temperature? Is there some music going on? Connect with the senses in a lot of ways to try to, that is a very shorthand version of what mindfulness in the bedroom can look like to stay present. And then there's the other layer of like what's going on in your head. Are you anxiously thinking about what's going to come next? Are you anxiously telling yourself, if I don't do this, they're going to say something. They're going to be disappointed. They're going to like, whatever, like try to shift those thoughts to a place of I'm having fun 
what am I experiencing? This feels nice. I want to do this next. I want to hear this next. I want to say this. I want to like, like, like how are you like pre- in the present moment? As if you're watching a movie, being in your body and just observing the experience. We're not thinking about the next scene, thinking about what's going on and enjoying the view if you're a visual person, enjoying the touch if you're a tactile person, enjoying maybe the noises or the experiences in that way as a way to stay in the body, stay present. In straight heterosex, and often in, in queer sex as well, it feels like someone has to play a masculine role and someone has to play a quote-unquote feminine role. When mm. I, I don't think that that's really the case. Do you, you know, again, in your work, have you noticed people hardlining into those roles? Or actually, I guess the question is, you know, people who are more masculine, do you think they find it hard to be tender to allow themselves to be maybe a little bit more soft or submissive or, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is we have these very outmoded ideas of what sex is supposed to be, Mm. that there has to be, you know, a quote unquote top and a quote unquote bottom, that there has to be a quote unquote man, a quote unquote woman. Um, With men in particular, have you noticed a desire to lean into a role other than the traditional masculine role and then a difficulty adapting into that role? It's interesting. So yes, the idea of, let's go with the person in charge, the decision maker, the top, whatever that is, the one in control, versus the receiver, the submissive, the one who doesn't have to think maybe, or is able to receive pleasure as a binary on that. So from a masculine perspective, I want to expand even that is that sometimes you can be in charge and talking about, hey, I'd like to receive this pleasure. Someone in the submissive role, making the decisions to be able to lay back and be gently caressed and rubbed and be coddled and so forth. But more to your question, I find it significantly difficult for a lot of men just to whole cloth without having a really lovely experience, a lovely partner to fall into the pleasure recepting role, the like giving up of control role, the allowing someone else to make decisions role. And I have talked to more than enough men who, even if they're more sort of like the topping composition, loving the idea of being desired and being taken care of as a very arousing place. So maybe the question is that we often get into this binary of someone has to always be in charge, always starting and always being the boss, always being the top. When there's an opportunity to find flexibility in that, to explore that, Uh, Back to that pleasure, back to the previous conversation, is that a lot of men, they don't even know the idea of how to like just relax and let somebody take over. Like that is a skill that is is missing because so many men have often been told this idea that they have to stay in charge. They have to stay on doing something or hands have to be busy or their penis has to be busy Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, hey, I'd like you to do this to me. I'm sitting back and allowing that person to take charge and then receive that is a mindset that, you know, accidentally or societally doesn't like get open to and that you know back to my go get a massage kind of thing is a way to practice like that right on do you get asked for unsolicited advice a lot not necessarily you know the thing is you would assume you do and i end up talking to a lot of my therapist friends who are doing more of like traditional therapy that is not specialized let's go with unspecialized general therapy that's the place i'm looking for i tend to hear stories that people ask them but because of the vulnerability and the thing is, when you ask a question, you're revealing yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, people are very shy to ask me things, I, I feel. When I at least talk to the anecdotal experiences of the other therapists who are getting asked all these things, and what do you think about this, and how do you think about this, there's enough, like, you know, f- 
you know, not vulnerable space for them to ask their friend. But when they ask me, they're like, oh, oh, I guess they're going to assume like, oh, yeah, you think I have like an erection problem or I'm having this problem. So that's just to say in the long run, when I think about the idea of like, oh, you're a therapist, everyone must be asking you. People tend not to ask because they don't tend to want to reveal, you know, whatever insecurity that they might be dealing with. Interesting. I just went in my brain and then just left my brain right after. Oh, as you have progressed through school and being in practice, have you learned things about yourself? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So let's see. Like first, so there's the layers of sexual awakening and understanding those things and understanding, oh, pleasure is different. So that's an element that started in the sex ed. But I now know my ADHD diagnosis and the neurodivergence I live in. But it used to be like, oh, you have a learning disability and you have dyslexia. But I was a high performer. I was getting all the A's. I was hyper focusing on getting through school. All the elements of what ADHD can do to like you know, help you excel at times and other times it can really hamper your executive function. I was learning that in college as I was starting to hit walls of, oh, I can't just brute force my way through my bachelor's program. Like I'm having trouble with time management and all these kind of pieces. And being in a class, you know, having light bulb moments of like, oh, oh, okay, that's what's going on with me kind of thing. So there was the learning of my brain and how it works was some big growth in there. And then a lot of therapy master's programs, they require you to get some amount of therapy. And I don't think I've ever heard less than 50 hours in a two and a half year phase. So Mm -hmm. doing personal therapy while being in a therapy classroom where we're doing some processing work and someone's talking about their divorce and I'm talking about my challenges with learning, (laughs) trying to get through school. Someone's talking about their like chronic illness. And so the grindstone of my program of going through therapy had mainly being torn open and constantly being very comfortable with being my authentic self in a way that sometimes has actually scared some people away from my life over years. Like, this is authentically who I am out in the yeah. world. I talk about myself. I talk about my struggles. I let people know into my head. And that is often a scary place for a friend or an associate who is like, oh my God, you're giving me way too much. This is TMI. And so accidentally, it has weaned a lot of people around me are kind of the same people, if you will, who are yeah. just willing to be very honest and very forward and open. So to say all that is to say the experience of my training has just allowed me to arrive at like a very authentic version of, of myself and, and wanting to live that all the time. Why do you think others are so afraid of authenticity? And I, not to toot my own horn, I've noticed as well, because I am pretty upfront about a lot of things that people... I guess, get kind of scared off by. Why do you think people are so freaked out when people are their true, true selves? From a therapeutic perspective is rejection, is that if I be my true self, people are going to reject me, which is is 100% true. So it's not a cognitive distortion to think that. There are going to be some people who are not going to jive or connect with, accept, or even the hardest part, love the version that is true to who you are underneath. Someone is like, you're going to make someone unhappy or they're going to leave or they're going to be annoyed or they're going to battle against that authentic self because maybe they're rejecting that in themselves. Like being your authentic self means having to go through the minefield of experiencing who doesn't accept that version of you. 
And so there's a roughness to starting to, to be authentic self. And I can still rubber stamp the idea of being different versions of yourself to different people. Like mm-hmm. that creates safety to some of my professional colleagues. I'm wearing a business suit. I'll go with that. I'm wearing the, the business suit. I am a super professional. I'm sharing about myself when it's importantly relevant and only adds to the story kind of thing. And I go to business mixers and I'm a version of that because that's sort of digestible and not going to scare people away. And so that is still a valuable way to move through the world, but it takes more energy to put on a mask, to put on an experience, to make sure that you're received well. And so there's no poo-pooing that. There's no diminishing that experience, but it does lead to burnout. It does lead to this experience of like, am I an introvert or do I just hate being this version of myself at these parties? <laughs> am I an extrovert or am I just really happy that these people around me are accepting me? So I'm being my full self. I think it also leads to an element of what's going to happen when these people find out about me, which is super stressful. And I get the idea that you have to be less vocal about some parts of yourself in certain situations. I mean, I don't go into business meetings with polyamory pin, you know, taped to my jacket or anything like that. You know, there's a time and a place, but I I feel like if somebody knows in a non-professional context, if they know me as a person, if they want to get to know me as a person, it's like, hey, there are some things that you have to know about me. The acceptance of that is non-negotiable. Living that way, though, is scary. And I think it requires a certain amount of confidence, if you will, in knowing that you're happy with yourself or you're excited about this. And that and that confidence is based on an internal and not an external validator, because you're going to be externally hurt if you have to be accepted by somebody, if everyone has to accept you. So I guess like an aside to this is, are you accepting of that part of yourself in general? Or are you still kind of working on it or not sure about it, that kind of idea? Yeah. I mean, working on yourself is a perpetual thing, right? It doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't stop. So I think for me personally, there's a base level of comfort. I think I've hit a stage in my career, in age and in my life where there's a part of me that doesn't really care what other people think about me. If you like me, you like me. If you don't like me, you don't like me. Now, I wish that more people liked me. And I wish Mm. that when people didn't like me, they would give me a reason why they didn't like me. But, you know, those are things we don't normally get from anybody. So, you know, I'm going to keep being me. Mm. Uh, And I think for me, there's also the sense of having been in the closet about so much for so long and understanding the mental damage that that did to me. Mm. It just feels like an easier way to live now to be open and honest and you know thankfully i am not living in a red state i'm not in a place where uh a it would be difficult for me to find like-minded people or b i run a grave risk of being targeted but i certainly still acknowledge that there is a level i mean you know it's 2022. You'd think that even just being queer is, you know, something that in New York City would not be a big deal, but there are still gay bashings in New York City. You know, you never know. So, you know, you kind of have to take the doubt and, you know, the knowledge that something could possibly happen and just say, well, you know, I'm going to take that risk, live my truest life anyway. Yeah. And I have to acknowledge what you said a little earlier is like there's a privilege in like being able to live. Like there's a certain amount of necessity of maybe some financial privilege, some financial security in that spot. I guess I don't want to say being authentic everywhere is accessible to everyone at every stage right. kind of thing. I'm living also in California where there's like a lot of permission, but currently there's some friction in my family because I'm out 
to my family. Everyone knows. And it was really wild when my grandma was like one of the biggest, oh, sure, love who you love and whatever. Stay family. This is you being you. And that was a wild surprise. But there's other family members who are making themselves scarce and creating some challenges. So that authenticity is definitely going to come with a cost. And how do you respond to that? I'm trying to take the high road. Not everyone is agreeing that we should, but it is a patience game. It is a hope that family will eventually circle back. But that does mean staring into some hurt. And understandably, there's other family members who are agitated and aggravated in that space. And they have every right to be because there's some hurt that is happening. Right. And talking about privilege, you and I both have male privilege. And, you know, it's one thing to note, even as many minorities as I am, there's still a level of privilege that I have. And one thing I also have is straight passing privilege. Mm. You know, unless I'm wearing a sign that said, you know, it's funny. I used to wear a shirt to work on occasion that said, this is what an awesome queer person looks like. Mm. And even then a coworker was like, oh, well, I thought you were an ally. I didn't think you were actually queer. (laughs) And it's really funny. I, you know, I don't intend to give off any particular vibe. You know, I just want to give off a mic vibe. But, you know, when people talk to me and they don't know me, they assume that I'm heterosexual. And that in itself is also a privilege Mm -hmm. because I think when someone walks into a room and they present themselves in a way that is stereotypically queer, they become more of a target than me walking in with a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, maybe my nails are painted and people are like, oh, that's cute. He's progressive. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know. And I, I feel like there are a lot of people who take that privilege and don't use it for good. You know, which leads to a lot of things like by erasure, people who don't necessarily speak up for themselves and others in situations where they're challenged, even though they have the privilege to speak up. (laughs) No, I totally hear you. And I also exist in that too. I'm incredibly straight passing, but I guess I'm still like in my own therapy about this. Am I like having some internalized homophobia about how I present about the world? Do I want to be seen that way? Or I just so enjoy this version of myself that it is, it is straight passing in that way. But then at the same time, I'm wearing really flamboyant shirts, groom myself very well. I take care of myself very well. You are very well groomed. (laughs) Thank you for saying. But there's all these chunks of like, I'm viewing myself as being a queer man. And I sometimes go like, you don't, you don't see me that way. So there's an oddness to like, as you just said, paint your nails kind of thing that I am a high mask queer man. And I enjoy that. I want to show up in this suit. I want to be viewed like that. That's a thing. But in our society, that's often connected with being straight. And that is sort of a challenge in, I guess, in my queerness is, are you asking me to put on a costume? And now I feel like I'm faking it. This is my voice. These are my things. And even it sounds so, so, so degrading to say that they implied that gay men have a different voice, but that is the association painfully yes. out yeah. in the world. Yeah. So yeah. it's so odd. Like I often get a pedicures. I, my toes are usually some version of purple, but, and what are the situations that that, that kind of pops out? Like I, I was hopping. Well, I mean, you do live in California. You can wear I sandals. Do. <laughs> yeah, I'm up in Monterey, so it's a little chillier. Um, but I was visiting my parents, and they have a hot tub, and I was hopping in the hot tub, and my mom was like, "Oh my god, your toes!" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I almost had forgotten that I had had them done." Like those little moments, like secretly wearing sexy underwear, things I guess I'm doing for myself, although they are also parts of me just being in, in my own identity. Yeah, it it really is interesting that we have these 
like hard coded ideas of what anything, you know, relation to sexuality or ethnicity or race or gender, like hard coded ideas of what these things are. And sometimes I think that people who want to be seen sacrifice parts of their identity in order to, you know, not be invisible, even if that invisibility, or even if I, I could dress more flamboyantly, but that I wouldn't be comfortable. And it's not homophobia because I will certainly kiss another man in public and I'm not antagonistic towards people who express themselves differently. I, I'm not comfortable dressing like that. You know, that's just kind of not my thing. I, I think collectively we need to broaden our idea of what these things can be. And there is, of course, a wide sexual spectrum, you know, a wide identity spectrum that encompasses all kinds. But it's funny, and I didn't even think of this, tying this back to when you and I first met, I assumed you were straight until (sighs) days after, maybe even weeks after we had met. I remember you messaged me and you were like, hey, you know, in retrospect, I kind of feel like you were giving me a vibe and, you know, I assumed that you weren't putting the same vibe out. And, you know, I guess we could say that it was a potential missed opportunity, but, you know, you didn't present to me as someone who was potentially queer. Yeah. As a rub of it, I guess, the, the sort of odd, oddness of it, where like my energy is often to similarly equated to when women date, the idea of are they hitting on me or are they just being polite? But my energy hitting on people or just being myself is relatively the same right. <laughs> kind of thing. So it's like hard to perceive outside of that. Right. Yeah. And the same for me is if I like you, the way that I am acting towards you could be seen as friendly or flirtatious. And there's really no difference between the two. And there's also a lot of gray area. Like I find you personally attractive. We could keep our pants on. We could keep our pants off. I'm fine either way. So I I do think that there's so much nuance and gray area that people just need to explore in general. And so maybe to circle back to the idea of men like that, it's just a lack of permission, a lack of opportunity. It becomes this place of, I would have to call it performance maybe, but it is this place of, is he doing that just to get attention? Or is is this his like gag? Is this his trick just to get it more attention? Or is this part of his identity? Like you were mentioning the idea of, do I have to queer it up to be respected? To be seen, that's a more appropriate way. Yeah. Yeah. And that way, so this mic, wearing a, oh, yeah, a funny right. shirt, a flamboyant shirt, or a fun little a shirt with like fruit on it, a fun little pattern on it, because he wants to get more attention and gaze, or is it because he's out there like just being himself? Right, right. It's an interesting conundrum. I will ask one final question, and we have been focused on your practice and sexuality and all that stuff for this entire time, but what does Mike do outside of his practice. What happened when you're not thinking about therapy, not thinking about sex, you know, outside of that? A little bit of video games when I can fit it in. I'm playing the new God of War, Ragnarok, and it's been recently been joked out to be like dad of war because the (laughs) storyline is a father and a son and, and then so forth. But that bleeds into what I'm also doing. It's like, I'm also being a father. Me and my daughter have a very close relationship. We have an anime we watch together. I'm often her secret keeper, often their secret keeper. They're um, using they and them pronouns now. So just 
just like bringing their friends around. I appreciate and love it to be a part of my kid's life, but it is this responsibility of getting to school, getting to after school. And then there's the going on dates with my wife, going on dates with the person I see locally and making time for the person I'm seeing in New York, all these kind of things. And that's a digital date for that person. So it's like mostly my free time is is socializing with the people I love and like monthly I hang out with a fun little gang of people. I am a very extroverted person and I would love to have more. I, I, I keep jo- jokingly like, oh, I'll get into woodworking or oh, I'll God. get into some constructive hobby or building thing. But right now I'm just really enjoying this thing, socializing in my life where video games actually were the whole part of my extracurricular and I wasn't having many connections. I was having a lovely like time engaging with that art and movies and, uh, and other medias. But I, I guess that's also to highlight where my passions lie is also in media. I just got my Spotify wrap up thing yeah, that's, that I had you know spent like 40,000 minutes listening to music on like some podcasts and, and so trying to discover new music discover new movies and so forth that's what I'm trying to do I love horror films I love high art films and indie films and so I try to enjoy what I can so but I have a lot of relational responsibilities but to my kid and to the people in my life and to my family and that ends up being a lot of my time and I thankfully I do appreciate it that's awesome. As I was wrapping this up, uh, it occurred to me that there really is sort of a secondary or tertiary conversation to be involved here, uh, which is about people who are neurodivergent and being a being successful in the workplace or being successful professionally while you are also neurodivergent. Um, there are plenty of neurodivergent people in this world. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the fact that Mike has kind of come to terms with his own neurodivergence and uh, works to help others, even if it's not specifically in that realm. Uh, I do think that uh, there are plenty of people who are neurodivergent, who have issues with relationships and, uh, you know, could use folks like Mike in their lives. Anyway, thank you to Mike Guichette for uh, doing what he does and for taking the time to appear on the podcast. If you want to know more about Mike, you can go to... uh, Michael Gouchet, sextherapy.com, M-I-C-H-A-L-G-U-I-C-H-E-T, sextherapy.com. I also want to give a big shout out to uh, our mutual friend, Dirty Lola. Uh, Dirty Lola is an amazing, amazing, amazing sex educator uh, based out on my hometown of Brooklyn. And uh, we work together uh, numerous times on numerous occasions. She is an amazing person and she suggested Mike for the show. So thank you, Lola. Thank you, Mike. And I hope that you all enjoyed this particular episode. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon. 
facebook.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace